Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, I'll be reading verses 57 down to the end of the chapter. Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. But they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. So they made signs to his father what he would have him called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying, His name is John. So they all marveled. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, praising God. Then fear came upon all who dwelt around them, and all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Now his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he, swore, which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people, by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading from his word this morning. You may be seated. We've been studying the book of Luke, and um, as we've gone through chapter 1, we have seen um, that God has sent the angel Gabriel both to Zacharias and to Mary in order to reveal to them the fulfillment, the beginning fulfillment of his redemptive plan, that he was going to begin to fulfill his redemptive plan, and he was going to do it through them. Each of them then received this angelic uh, message, um, messenger, but each of them responded in a different way. Zacharias responded um, with doubt, and because of his doubt, um, he was then told as well, turn this thing on, that he would be then mute. Um, he wanted a sign. He was going to get a sign. He'd be mute until the time that John was going to be born. We'll talk about that today, right? And so then Mary, though, she receives, and she has a little bit of wonder and amazement that how could this be, because she's a virgin and she's never been with a man. And so the angel Gabriel explains to her how this thing's going to happen. And she says, well, okay, fine. Let it be unto me, um, unto your servant. And so she then responds and says, behold, the maidservant of the Lord. 
Now we see the convergence then of these two things begin to happen two weeks ago as we begin to look at the birth of John. And as it all worked out, God wanted this message to be split into two. And so, um, so the missionary went, I don't say, I can't say he went long because I asked questions and I wanted him to do that. So I was excited about how that played out. And so the message wound up getting divided um, with the first part talking about then um, the visit of Mary and how when Mary came to visit Elizabeth, um, two miracles were joined with additional miracles. Because you've got Mary, who has a child in her womb, clearly a miracle, is visiting Elizabeth, who has a child in her womb, which we're told to be a miracle as well, right? But it's an exciting moment because the approximately six-month-old fetus, quote-unquote fetus, that is in Elizabeth's womb, jumps at the presence, leaps for joy at the presence of the less than a month old, probably, fetus that's in Mary's womb. A phenomenal thing that happens. We can debate timing of all that stuff, but we know that it has to be within that time, that ballpark that Mary must have gone within that first month, okay? And so she stays there for three months, we're told, okay? Probably to the time of Elizabeth giving birth to, to John. It doesn't look that way necessarily as we read it, but um, the way the wording is, when we come with um, the birth of John, there's kind of like it's being pulled back and talked about a time as well. And so, so she's probably there until John is born, and then she goes her way and goes back, okay? And so we see then in that, though, not just the, the leaping for joy, but also the statement of Elizabeth, her senior. When she sees Mary, she calls Mary the mother of my Adonai, the mother of our Adonai, okay, of our Lord. She's recognizing who this child is going to be. Now, I want you to think about that. The child hasn't been born. The child is only less than a month old within the womb, a fetus. Elizabeth has great confidence that Mary's not going to what? Let it go to her head. Not going to let it go to her head. She's not going to have a miscarriage. Make sense? This, this baby's coming to full term because this baby is going to be who? Our Adonai. He's going to be Messiah. He's going to be the one that God's coming. I just think this, this full moment, you know, there's so many places that you'd love to be, the fly on the wall and how things happen. I mean, this would be one of these just marvelous moments with Mary and Elizabeth joining together in a celebration that's happening with two women of faith who are accepting what God is. I mean, Elizabeth hasn't given birth to John yet, right? She's accept, accepting exactly what God has declared, and she's accepting what she's heard. I mean, I don't even know how she's heard about with Mary, you know? And so there she is, and all this is going on. And so then Mary gives this exaltation of praise coming out of it as well, where she praises God for who he is. He's mighty, holy, merciful in what he has done. Not going to do, but what he has done. He has scattered the proud and put down the mighty. He has filled the hungry with good things. And he has helped Israel in remembrance of his chesed, of his mercy. And that theme is we're going to see again coming out here when Zechariah's mouth is opened, and he begins to declare, prophetically, he's going to declare again the remembrance of God's chesed. That God is, and so for those, if you're new, my favorite word in the entire Bible is the word chesed. 
chesed. It's the chesed of God. It is the faithful, loving kindness of God to the objects of his covenants. And so a lot of times it's translated as loving kindness in the Old Testament, but many times it's translated as mercy, and I don't know why. It just really doesn't make sense to me, because that's rachum. Rachum is the compassion and tender mercies of God, and so we see that as well here, but so many times the word chesed is translated as mercy, and I don't know why. So so you'll see on this thing, I'm going to refer back to the, that concept of mercy in two different ways. I think sometimes it's the rachum, it's the compassion, and sometimes it's the chesed, it's the um, it's the, the loving, faithful kindness of God. And so both of them are going to go back to this because they're remembering that God is a faithful God. He is a muna. He is a main. So when you say amen, amen, it means truly, truly, faithful, faithful. That's what he is, okay? God is chesed and emet. He is faithful and true. That's who he is. And it, it, he can be counted on at all times. And so these Jewish people who understand the law, who understand the covenant, who understand who Yahweh is, they're going back to the fact that God is he is faithful and true. He can be counted on. We've been waiting for this moment for all this time, and here it's happening. And God's not going to go back on what he has now begun. Isn't that kind of cool? Okay. You ought to be counting on that. That he who began the good work in you will continue to perform it till what? The day of Jesus Christ. He's not going to stop. And I'm, I'm positive that there were times for Israelites that they wondered whether God what? Forgot. Is he going to continue it? Is he going to do this thing? But the reality is God doesn't forget. He's always true. He's always faithful. And what God has begun, he will finish. And so that's what we then continue to see as we come now into the unmuting of Zechariah. I don't know how any better way of saying this other than the unmuting of Zechariah, because it really wasn't a healing. I mean, Zechariah wasn't healed. His voice was just shut down, and God's taking it away. Jesus says, okay, now you can talk, right? But before that happens, again, one more thing needs to happen, and that is what? John needs to be born, and then John needs to be named. And so then he can be unmuted, okay? And so, so the first thing we see then is this naming of John. And as you saw, as we begin in verse 57 and 58, again, I think this is kind of neat because even in the, um, the naming of John, even in his very birth, there is a testimony. Now, Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered and she brought forth a son when her neighbors and relatives heard how Adonai, how the Lord, had shown great chesed, or Rachum, whichever way you want to look at it, to her, they rejoiced with her. There was a testimony in just the birth of John. God took a woman who was, in their minds, past the point of childbearing, and he opened up her womb. Now, I know some women who would love to be pregnant and can't haven't been able to. I've known several women in the past who were in that position. And then after periods of time, not necessarily through um, the modern medicine type stuff, but just God opening up their womb and get, allowing them to have babies. And the testimony of that moment is phenomenal because you know that is a matter of prayer over time, that God just in his mercy, in his grace, in his favor, has allowed them the privilege of, of having the child. And so, again, as we talked about that, we don't know how long Elizabeth and Zacharias wanted this child. But Gabriel comes to Zacharias and he says, your prayers are 
answered, you're going to have a baby. He must have been yearning for this for years. His wife must have been yearning this for years. The neighbors know. Do you think everybody kind of knew that something special was going to be happening with this baby? Especially when Zacharias comes back from the temple. You know what I'm saying? You know, an angel came to me in the temple. Like, you know, and how do you do that? We went to the, the play the other night, you know, and you watch the, the little girl doing the signing thing and that kind of stuff. And you think the reality is that I always think about what does Zacharias look like when he's trying to tell everybody what happened? It's not like he knew American Sign Language, you know? And so there he's trying to explain. I had an angel. It came to me. He told me all these things. And so did he get a piece of paper and he started writing all this stuff down? The neighbors knew. And now all of a sudden the fulfillment of all this is happening. The baby is born. But now we have the testimony, not only of just the birth, but the name itself. Because the intention of the crowd was to name the baby Zacharias. Why? Because they're going to name it after him. But Elizabeth interjects and says, no, he's going to be John. And they go, well, no, no, no. And so Zacharias is you know, he's kind of waving, and they're like, well, what do you, what do you, th- what do you think he should be? And so he asks for a piece of paper or whatever, and he writes down his name is... Yachanan, Yachanan, John. Yachanan, again, is Jehovah, Yahweh, Chanun, the favor, the grace of God, the favor of Yahweh. His name will be God's favor. His name will be John. The crowd then reacts, just is amazing. And it look, it says, verse 65. Then fear came, well, I've got to start at verse 64 because it's the name of part of it. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he spoke praising God. Then, what? The crowd that was filled with fear on all those who dwelt among them. And all these things were discussed in all the hill country of Judea and all those who heard them kept these things in their heart. What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord, Adonai, was upon him. I just think it's totally amazing because again, remember when we started this um, series, okay, and we talked about how that, that Luke wanted to write these things that you might know for sure, that you have a surety of the things that you've heard, right? And I asked the question, if you were going to write this account of the gospel of John, or the gospel, I'm sorry, the gospel of Jesus Christ, where would you begin it? Well, Luke chooses to begin this thing at the, the vision of Zacharias. I think we understand now why. Because the birth of John was in such a way that it itself gives testimony to Jesus Christ. Because it itself gives testimony to the prophetic role of John, and then John is going to be the one who declares Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No one could deny the sign of John's birth. Everybody accepted the fact that Zacharias saw an angel. He saw a vision. He saw something, and that he couldn't speak until the baby was named. Not just born, but named. And instantly, when he writes out, his name is Yahachanan. All of a sudden, his mouth is opened up, and he begins to praise God and gives glory to God. And fear fell upon all the people because they begin to realize, wow, okay. These are things we only have read about. But now it's happening in my day. What does all this mean? 
Then John grows up, we're going to see, and he's going to go out into the wilderness. He's going to wear camel's hair and eat locusts and wild honey. And he's going to, he's going to have long hair, and he's going, to, he's going to say weird stuff. Not weird to us, but weird to them. Repent, change the way you think, because the kingdom of God has come near. And they're going to go out to him in the wilderness, and they're going to be baptized. They're going to be immersed into his teachings, to be identified with his teachings with the recognition that, that Yahweh, that, that, that Messiah is coming to the world. And then he's going to be the one who points out Jesus. So, the naming of John. But then we have this next part, which is really the major part. And that is when Zacharias's mouth is opened up. And what he begins to declare, I think prophetically, um, that again, as... The Holy Spirit fell upon Elizabeth and she, she declares regarding Mary and stuff like that um, that the Holy Spirit is at work and he is moving mightily in this. And so we see right off the bat that Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied saying, Blessed is Adonai Elohim of Israel, the Lord God of Israel, for he has, note the what? Past tense. Okay, He has visited and redeemed his people. So the first thing he's going to talk about is the redemption of his people. And the word there is the word lutron. And it literally means to loosen or to be freed. So if you think of a, the, the, um, a horse called the, the Appaloosa. Have you ever heard of an Appaloosa? Okay, it comes from that. And you think about an Appaloosa just running along the, the, the ranges and stuff like that. That's, that's the freedom that's there. And it comes from the word luo. Luo means to be loose or destroyed. Ooh or destroyed, that sounds awful, okay? But from the perspective of then to be let go, okay? So the idea then of redemption is then that you have been loosened of the debt. Does it make sense? You've been freed from the debt. You had something that you had to pay that you couldn't pay, and so it was then what? Freed, you were freed from it, okay? Now, this is going to be fun because we're going to get into the remission of sin and the word that's there. And these two words play together, and we're going to see this at the very end, okay? And how these two words play together biblically, okay, with redemption and remission of sins, okay? It's just a, a wonderful thing. So anyways, so to be loosened, okay? And so this all comes together then, how it starts beginning with this promise of redemption, this promise of the loosening that, that Yahweh was going to do for his people. And so we see right off the bat, he has looked upon and made ransom for his people, and raised up a horn of salvation. So think about back in the days of the Exodus, right? When God comes to Moses, and he begins to talk to Moses, he says what? I have seen my people. I have heard their cry. And I am doing this, and I'm going to do it what? Through you. But I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it through you. Same concept here, okay? Yahweh has looked upon his people. He's made ransom for his people. Again, that's what? Past tense. When did Jesus die for us? Before the foundations of the world. Don't miss it. Details are important. Jesus wasn't coming to pay the penalty of their sins. He was coming to fulfill that which already had been declared. The plan was already established. 
Why do you think Satan was working so hard to destroy it? Because it already was. And the only chance he had was to try to put a hiccup in God's plan. But you know as well as I know on this part, right? It's a no-brainer. You can't do that. But if you're in Satan's position, a fool thinks like a what? A fool. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God, right? And so you're already committed to the process. What are you going to do? You're going whole hard at it because this is your only option. So he has looked upon, he has made ransom for his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. And this horn of salvation is according to the message of the prophets since the what? The world began. Well, Genesis in Psalm 18, um, we read about that horn of salvation. You can go there later and look at that. But Genesis 3.15, does anybody remember what's going on in Genesis 3.15? It's right after the fall, and it's part of the cursing, right? And he's talking to the, the woman and to the serpent, because he's specific to the serpent at this moment, that about you shall bruise his heel, but he shall what? Crush your head. And he's, he's talking then about the seed of the woman. And so right from the very beginning, right from the time when Satan through the serpent caused mankind to fall, again, it didn't take God by surprise. He's already giving an indicator of what his plan of redemption has been before Satan ever caused Adam and Eve to fall. It didn't take God by surprise. And so this horn of salvation has been raised up since the world began, okay? Um, and then 49.10 is this, the prophecy through Jacob. It says how that, that the, the scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh has, has come, okay? The one who will bring peace, okay? And then we see that he also states that he's delivering us uh, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hands of all those who hate us, verse 71. And so 1 Corinthians 15, 25, 26, anybody know what that is? That's where Paul is talking about Jesus, talking about end times, talking about the resurrection, and Jesus is going to be raised up, and he talks about all things are going to be placed where? Under his feet. Does anybody know who the last enemy to be placed under his feet is going to be? Death. Death will be the last enemy that's placed under his feet. And so then we go to Matthew 5, though, 43 and 44, totally different, totally different concept, okay? So we have our enemy, which is death. Death is going to be placed under his feet. So therefore, death, as, uh, that our enemies are all taken care of under Jesus, and we'll talk more about that in just a moment when we get to the next phase, okay? But for here, just a little, another side subject, Matthew 5, 43 and 44, does anybody know what that command is from Jesus to us? You've heard it said, you shall love your, neighbor as your, uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say unto you, love your enemies and pray for those who despitefully use you. Okay? And so, so in a sense, God has delivered us, if you would, from our enemies, even to the point of death being the enemy, right? That our response now is to do what? Love our enemies. I don't have no fear of my enemy. My enemy, and again, we're going to talk about this more in just a moment, okay? My enemy, who's my chief enemy? Satan, Satan okay? We'll talk about him in a moment, okay? He has nothing over me. Nothing over me. And so anybody on the earth 
who you feel to be your enemy, who feel that you feel to be against you, your proper response, John, like in your testimony, right, is to what? Pray for them, love for them, pray for them, right? Because that's what God wants us to do, to, to understand that they are under the, 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 the sway, if you would, of the evil one, and they're acting the way they're acting because that's the, the sway they're under. I used to be there. I used to live that way. Even while I was at enmity with God, he sent Jesus to do what? To die for me. God delivers us from our enemies. We're going to talk about that deliverance from death in just a moment, okay? But the reality is God delivers us from our enemies, period. Do not be encapsulated. Uh, to be captured, if you would. I'm trying to think of my proper word here. By your enemies. Don't allow them to own you. Does that make sense? We, we do that. We allow others to own us with bitterness, with fear. I, I don't need to have any of that stuff. God has saved me from my enemies. God has delivered me from my enemies. So he goes on, continues on here, right? Not just the promise of the redemption, but the purpose of the redemption. And he says then that the purpose of the redemption is to perform the mercy, I think, said, promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, to remember his holy covenant, his oath, and then finally um, to, uh, to deliver us from, again, from the hands of our, our enemies. So to perform the said promise to our fathers, okay? Uh, turn to Psalm 98.3 with me, okay? Let's go there, and let's look at that real quick. Psalm 98.3. I promised myself that putting those up there, we were going to turn pages, and we are going to go look at these things. We have a lot of verses at the very end of the message that I want us to remember to, to go back and look at. But I'm going to start from verse 1, okay? Psalm 98, beginning of verse 1. Oh, sing to Yahweh a new song. For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. Yahweh has made known his salvation. His righteousness he has revealed in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his chesed and his amuna, his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have what? Have seen the salvation of our God. What is God's ultimate goal? Ultimate goal. We're going to talk about some other goals here, other purposes. But what's his ultimate goal in the redemption of his people? Say it again, Shireen. For all to have it. Yeah, he desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth, right? That's not going to happen. But in a sense, he wants all the world to know that he is God. It's a theme throughout the message. I mean, when Israel was being delivered again from the Exodus, right? It was so that the world would know that he was God. So Israel would know that he was God. That Pharaoh would know that he was God. That Egypt would know that he was God. That the world would know that he is God. Check me out on it. All those things are declared. That that's why God is doing these things. That the world would know that he was Yahweh. Through the prophet Jeremiah, through the prophet Ezekiel, is that the world would know that he is Yahweh. He just wants the world to know, but then he made man with a free will to be able to choose what they want to do with that. Man is without excuse. Isn't that what Romans 1 says? 
what's my function then? Well, we're going to see this in just a moment, but what's my function? As one who is redeemed, one who has had their sins forgiven, right, and paid for, make him known. That's it. That's, that's simple. It's, 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 it, it is that simple. That is it. I'm supposed to be making him known. That's his desire. So, to remember his holy covenant, his oath, Genesis 12, verse 3, that's his covenant to who? Abraham. Abraham, okay? That in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He's fulfilling this now at this moment. It's all coming to pass. Zechariah is getting it, and he's understanding. He's, he's explaining all these things. New, new situation without my table with here that I don't, can't put my stuff down. I got to figure out, I was like, how am I going to do this, Lord? I'm going to hold it. We're going to figure it out. It's, no, I can't do that. I, I like the space. I can move around. I don't have to worry about it. You know, it's just kind of nice. We'll figure it out. So, why? In order that we might what? Serve him. He's doing all these things in order that we might serve him. This, again, is an old covenant concept, okay? Being brought over into the new covenant for us. What does God expect of us? That's what happens throughout Deuteronomy. A couple times, Moses is bringing up, what is it the Lord requires of us? He requires us to serve him, to love him. That's the greatest commandment. It comes from the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, right? To love the Lord God, Yahweh your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, right? And then he goes on there in verse, in, I think, chapter 10 um, of Deuteronomy, and he says, and what is it that Yahweh requires of you? But to what? To love him and then to serve him. And that's the whole idea, that we might serve him, though, what? Without fear. He is redeeming you, bringing payment for your sins. He is loosing you, okay, of the debt that you owe because he's paid it himself. So he's loosing you of the debt so that you don't have to fear the judgment day. The judgment seat. Are you, are you tracking with me on this one? There's nothing to fear. If you have received the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, you should have no fear of standing before God. The fear of God is replaced with the love of God. It's all one the same. It's all one the same. If you're walking in sin, if you're walking in darkness, you ought to what? Fear God. But if you're walking and you're serving God, there's what? There's no fear. There's no fear. Okay? Secondly, you're supposed to be doing it in holiness and righteousness. Where? How? Before him. So that you might serve him in being set apart, in holiness, okay? It's not the word hagios there, okay? But it's consecration. The word is hasios, okay? And it means to be consecrated, okay? So that you are serving in this consecration, but you're also serving in dikaios, righteousness. It's also dikaios. Dikaios is sometimes translated as justice or to be just. So you are in righteousness or in justness before God. Why? Because he has what? Loosed you of your debt. Do you get it? It's justice that's being served. So you are set apart for him. You are consecrated. So there's no fear because he's consecrated you and he has made you just. He's justified you. 
He's made you righteous. Not according to your own righteousness, but according to his. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. That God made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin in order that we might become his righteousness. How cool is that? Is that right? And that would happen how long? How long? All the days of our lives. There used to be a soap opera. It might still be on. I don't know. <laughs> Called what? Days of our lives. Probably still on. I mean, it was when I was a kid, you know, and I remember my mom watching different soap operas and stuff like that. It's probably still on. They probably still have the same characters. Anyways, <laughs> I understood that Luke and Lars came back to General Hospital for those who were on there. Anyway, so, um, so I know a little bit of that stuff from the past. Anyways, I don't think they looked like they did back then. Anyways, and so... When you watch all those soap prophets, the days of our lives aren't very good, are they? But according to God's word, and when you're walking in his presence and when you're serving him, guess what? All the days of our lives are special times, are opportunities for us to serve the risen king. And so, the redemption of his people comes, though, through the means of the remission of his sins. And so, back there in, in Zacharias' statement, right? He says, in you, child, verse 76, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of Adonai, the Lord, to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation, which we saw, remember, in Psalm, Psalm uh, 98, okay, which we just read, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. So this word remission, okay? I have up there Ephesus, okay? Um, again, comes from two words, but the word means to pardon, but literally, it comes from afayami, and it literally means then to send away or to leave, okay? And so the idea is that um, when you think of the concept of being pardoned, you're on death row, right? And you deserve to what? Die for your, your, your consequences, for, for your actions. Well, we know that that's biblical, Romans six twenty three. the wages of sin is death, right? And that uh, James 2, verse 10 says that even if... If you obey the whole law, yet you stumble one point, you're guilty of, of it all, okay? And so the reality is that we've all sinned, fall short of the glory of God, so therefore we're, we're all under just condemnation, okay? So we're all on death row. But the only way we can get off a of death row is from a, pardoning, a pardon from the governor. If it's a federal offense, it's got to come from a pardon from the president, okay? But you can be pardoned. I've got a great book called Twice Pardoned. Um, about a guy who um, didn't do the crime that he was guilty of um, or, or accused of and then also then put on death row for. Um, somebody else, he was just the, the wheel man and the two guys who did it said he was the, guy, the trigger man. Anyways, so, but while he's on death row, he got pardoned by Jesus. He got saved, but he understood the consequence that, that just as he was on death row physically, he was on death row spiritually. And, he, and so when Jesus came, he gave him, he released him. You get it? He released him. And then he pardoned him. He forgave him. Well, then the governor eventually winds up pardoning him too. And so he was then freed from the prison. So that's why the book is called Twice Pardoned. But that's the picture of what God has done for you and me. He paid 
the penalty of your sins in order that you could be released, sent away, free, forgiven, pardoned. There ought to be a sense of freedom, no fear, but on the other side, a sense of what? Obligation. If you, if, if you knew, if you could comprehend the debt that you owed and what he has done for you, you couldn't help but say, how can I serve you? What can I do for you? I owe you all. I owe it all to you. I owe it all to you, Jesus. Here, my hope is found. Here, on holy ground. This is it. No matter where you are at, at that moment, I remember that moment. I remember rolling out of my bed, I was going to hell. I remember my heart was ready to break. I was crying my eyes out. You can ask Marcia. Is there anything I can do for you? No, there's nothing you can do for me. And I remember going into my papa's on chair, curling up, and just crying my eyes out. God, if you could save this wicked soul, I'm yours. I didn't know I, was supposed to, I wasn't supposed to give him a blank check. He took my blank check and he wrote, <laughs> wrote it all. He goes it all. I've never, never, never looked back and never have, have questioned it. You owe it all to him. Do you get it? It's not an obligation from the perspective that he requires it of you. It ought to just be in your heart. When someone gives you a special gift, don't you just want to do something for them? I think we reveal in our lifestyle, in our decisions, what we really think about what God has done for us. He's not the genie in the bottle. He doesn't come to your beck and command. He's done these things for you. And those who have accepted it, those who have understood it, it's changed their lives. It's transformed their lives. Jesus said, this is part of my, my quiet time right now, I'm going through Matthew. If any man wants to follow me, he needs to what? What's the first one? Deny himself. Secondly, take up his cross daily. And thirdly, follow me. If you want to be my disciple, Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Because you'll get it. you understand it. Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable act of worship. Romans 12, verse 1. And then he slides into verse 2. Therefore, do not be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed in the renewing of your mind, that you may be able to prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You know it. Many of you are quoting it with me. But where do we live it out? So this remission of sin, this pardoning, this sending away of it, it was going to happen through, beginning through the ministry of John. He was sending John, you child will be called the prophet of the highest. For you will go before the face of Adonai to prepare his ways. This is fun because again, I can't stop. This is from Isaiah 40, verse 3. This is a, a direct statement that who, who he is. He wasn't coming to prepare the way of Adonai, okay? 
He was coming to prepare the go back and check me out. And it's Isaiah 40, verse 3. He's coming to prepare the way of Yahweh. Yahweh, specifically, Yahweh, the name of the one who is, the one who was, the one who always shall be, the one who just everything exists, the creator God, the creator of heavens and the earth. That's who Yahweh is, and that's who Jesus is. John was coming to prepare the way of Yahweh. Yahweh incarnate was going to be on the earth, and John had the unique privilege of being that guy, of being that guy. He was going to be beheaded. Wow, that's a special privilege, isn't it? He had a ministry for about six months to a year. And then he's arrested and he's killed. But among those born of women, there is not a greater. But in the kingdom of God, he's least. Isn't that amazing? John would begin to give knowledge. The word is gnosis. Not oida, not factual knowledge. He wants to give intimate knowledge of himself that people might know him. John, John 17, verse 3, Jesus said, this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Again, in the Greek, there are two primary words for the word knowledge. There's the word oida, edo, which means factual knowledge, to know about something. And then there's the word gnosko, which means to intimately know. And so many of you might know oida, you might oida Marsha, but I gnosko Marsha. You oida me, but Marsha gnoskos me. You track what I'm saying? 23 years I oided God. I could tell you the books of the Bible. I could tell you about Jesus Christ. I could tell you that he died on the cross. I could tell you that he rose again three days later. But I didn't know him. I knew about him. I went to church every Sunday. I mean, you guys have heard me say this. Uphill both ways. It went in snowed sleet or whatever. We did it. We were better than the post office. Dad had us there. I praise the Lord for that. But I just knew about God. I didn't know God. I shared that last week at my brother-in-law's funeral. It's a huge statement. Especially for people who are churchgoers all the time. And it may sink with somebody here today. I don't, I don't want to make any presumptions. I, don't, I look out, I'm not going to presume that you don't know Christ, but I don't want to presume that you do know Christ. God knows your heart. God knows my heart. All you know is fruit that you see from my life, but you don't know my heart. Jesus said in Matthew 7, he says, that day some are going to come to him and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, did I not do want all these wonderful works in your name? Did I not cast out demons in your name? And I'm going to look at them and I'm going to say, depart, you son of lawlessness. I didn't know you. You can claim all you want that you know him. But in that same passage there, Matthew 7, he talks about you'll know them by their fruits. What are the fruits of your tree? What do they declare? What is God going to declare about you? You can, you can fake everybody in your house, you can fake everybody in the church, you can fake everybody in your neighborhood, but you cannot fake God. In the end, it's going to be God that you stand before. There is no fear when you know that you know that you know that you know. You know? You get what I'm saying? All right. So, Jesus, John's going to come, he's going to prepare the way of Yahweh, and he's going to present the way of peace. Because peace with God only comes when your debt has been released and forgiven. Do you understand? Until that moment. I mean, think about it. I used to rent my house 
from Bank of America. And then one day I made a massive rental payment to them so that I could no longer have to rent my house from the Bank of America. But now I theoretically what? <laughs> you know where I'm going. Now I theoretically own it. But now the reality is now I just directly rent it from the government. Because if I choose to not pay my taxes to the government, my rental payments to the government, one day they're going to what? They're going to come and seize it. So there's always a fear of owing somebody. Right now we're in debt. Do you realize this church is in debt? Even though we've paid off this facility, we're in debt to Georgia Power. Because somebody turned the lights on today. And we owe them. They could put a lien against us if we choose not to pay. We have water. Well, yeah, water. We have water running, so we owe them too. Do you get where There's always this fear when you owe somebody. God has paid the debt that you owed him all on his own. And there is now a peace that passes human understanding that comes. And so in Philippians chapter 4, we're told, don't be anxious for anything, but in all things through prayer and supplication with what? Thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. There is a peace. If this God, think about it, if this God, before the foundations of the world were laid, had made the, a plan of redemption so that he would come for Bob Corbin and pay Bob Corbin's debt so that Bob Corbin could have fellowship with him, do you think it ends there? Do you think that whatever happens, and a couple of you know what happened a couple of weeks ago with the car wreck and stuff like that, you know, I don't know how that's going to play out. I don't know where I'm going to turn, I'm going to look. And I'm going to, you know, and so let's say this thing, something worse happened. I turn and I see a dead daughter that's there. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I had to go through that later in my brain. Okay, God is still good, and God would give me a peace that would pass understanding to go through that, that a desert time through a valley moment. Does that make sense? We don't want valley moments. We don't want desert times. We don't want to have to rely upon our God. But God is there to bring us the way of peace that begins at the cross, that plays out at the judgment seat of Christ. But then it should continue to live out all the days of your life. Do you get it? All the days of our lives. If people see it, they see the peace and they go, how can you go through these things? And it gives us the opportunity to do what? To make known our God, who has given us the plan of redemption. Because I know that this life is not what is, is the end point. One day I'm going through the portal of the ultimate enemy. <laughs> Think about it. I'm going through the portal of what? Death. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? It's nothing. You're just a portal. The worst thing the world thinks they can do to me is the best thing that they can do to me. Because I get to stand in the presence of my God and I get to see Him face to face. And how my heart yearns, Job declared. Job, in the days of Noah, 
in the days of Abraham understood that truth. That after my flesh is destroyed, that in my flesh I will see my God face to face. And how my heart yearns. How my heart yearns. Through the mercy of God to provide the remission of sins. If you can turn quickly, we're going to go to each one of these passages. But I have a cheat sheet. So I have them all here. All right? So I want you to, if you can turn to them, I want you to go there. You can see most of those are in Luke, and then they're in Acts. I chose these ones specifically. Okay, why? Say again? Well, relevant, yes. Who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. So these are all in the manner that Luke wrote using the same terminology. Make sense? So there's no confusion. Oh, that's Pauline. You know, that's, that's Johanan you know, from John. This is Luke. Luke is writing consistently. So this is the Holy Spirit using the same author, the same penman, in the same stylistic way. Okay? So this concept then of the remission of sins, okay? the payment, the ephesus, the, the pardoning, if you would, of the sins. Okay? So this first started in um, Mary's statement back in uh, verse 77, okay? where she declares, sorry, Zacharias, this is Zechariah's statement, yeah, to give knowledge to salvation by the remission of sins. That's right, okay. And then uh, chapter 3, verse 3, where we read, He, that is John, went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching an immersion of repentance, metanoia, that's our word, metanoia, so you hear it every week at the end of the, the service, right? Is there a need to change the way you think? Is there a need to metanoia? Is there a need to p- repent, right? So he goes around preaching the baptism, the immersion of repentance, for the remission of sins. And so, what is being tied together at this moment with this remission of sins? Say it again louder. Well, baptism, we'll get there in a moment. But metanoia, okay? Changing the way you think, okay? You've got to change the way you think in order to get to this point where you're going to have your sins remitted, sent away. There then is this identification process that reveals it, and that is you are immersed. You are immersed, revealing the fact that you have this changing away, you think, into the remission of your sins. Okay? So we go on, Luke 4, verse 18. The Spirit of Yahweh is upon me. This is Jesus speaking um, when he is declaring his messianic uh, office. The Spirit of Yahweh is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty. That's our word for remission or forgiveness. Okay, That he's proclaimed liberty to the captives and recovery of the sight of blind, to set at liberty, again, those who are oppressed. Now, I think this is kind of fun because when he says to set at liberty... It's the word apostello, which is where we get our word apostle from. It's the word for an official sending forth, okay? And so God has a way when he, again, this concept of justification, right? That when God forgives your sins, when he sends it away, it is an official decree. (laughs) Do you get it? This isn't just haphazard. God is setting his seal on this thing. And so Jesus came in order to set the captives, those who were captive, to set them free. 
you've been set free. You no longer, Romans chapter 6, have to be in bondage to sin. You've been set free from the bondage to sin. It has no power over you. It should have no reign over you. It only does because we allow it to. And I'm not picking on you. I'm in that camp. I have to remind myself that all the time. It has no power over me. My flesh and my spirit, they battle. The soul's a middle battleground, right? I have to make the decision to follow God, not flesh. Luke 24, this is when Jesus is, is, is going up, right? And he, says, and he says to his disciples, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance, metanoia, changing way, and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Again, what does Jesus say then as he's getting ready to go needs to happen from this point forth with the church? Metanoia and forgiveness. You have to change the way you think in order to be what? Released, in order to be forgiven. Now we get into Acts chapter 2. Because Peter now, on the day of Pentecost, Peter says to them when they said, Sirs, what must we do to be saved, right? Peter says to them, repent. That's our word, what? Metanoia. Change the way you think. Repent and let every one of you be immersed in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness, the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This word, Ephesus, comes from the word, Ephiemi, okay? This is the same word in Matthew, that is in the, the, the Lord's um, prayer, quote-unquote, that, um, that when you're asking God to forgive you, and he says, and, but forgive us as we also what? Forgive others. Forget us our debts as we also forgive the debts of others. And then Jesus goes on to say, because if you will not forgive the debts of others, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your debts. Same word. I want you to think about this one. Okay? It's a... It's a if you're holding on to that debt for somebody else and you can go back and you can read the illustration parable that Jesus gives about the, about the servant who was forgiven his massive debt and he turns around and he will not forgive the debt of his, his fellow servant and the, and the master comes and he takes him and he throws him into the pauper prison until he pays it off. It's a big deal with God for us to turn around and extend the same forgiveness that we've received. I've been forgiven millions of dollars, spiritually speaking. It's for me to turn around and just to forgive the, the, the nickels and the dimes and the hundreds that someone else may owe me. Through the mercy of God, right? So Acts 5, 30, 31. God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted at his right hand to be the prince and savior, to give repentance, changing the way to think to Israel in the forgiveness, the remission of their sins. Acts 10, 43. To him, this is Peter speaking. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, therefore they've had a what? A changing of the way they think. Whoever believes in him will receive, this is a promise, the remission, the forgiveness of sins. And finally, Acts 13, 38, 39. Paul's declaring, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you, the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified, made righteous by the law of Moses.
I think this is so exciting. This is Zacharias. This isn't one of Jesus' disciples. This is the father of John who needed a sign. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon him and he begins to proclaim the wonderful works of God, what does he proclaim? The redemption of his people through the remission, the forgiveness of their sins. What God has begun, he will finish. And if he's begun the good work in you, I can make a promise, but it's meaningless. But God has promised he will continue to perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. So, do you honestly trust God to complete the work that he began in you? Are you submitting to the work or resisting against it? Are you faithfully proclaiming the message of redemption to those you meet? Again, that's his desire, that the world might know. That's our job. Is there a need to change the way you think and therefore change the way you act? Let's pray. Father, thank you for you. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the plan of redemption which you initiated before the worlds began. And Lord, thank you that you came yourself to this earth in order to pay the penalty of our sins. No other. It needed a perfect sacrifice that would require you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for revealing all this through your servant Mary, through Elizabeth, through Zacharias, ultimately then through John and clearly yourself coming on the earth. But Father, help us to be willing to be used by you in this day, Lord, to be bold proclaimers of your redemption through the remission of sins of those we meet, that you might receive the glory in Christ's name. Amen.